0: What I want to do is I just want to re-summarize real quick the Good Samaritan, make, make sure that I got that as clear as I could. Then we're going to move on into Luke into the other parables, and we're going to see again. Sometimes it's really hard to tell what's a parable and what's not, but we'll get to take a look. And uh, a lot of our discussion tonight is going to be centered on prayer. Uh, that's the next parable we find. So let's uh, begin with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into the text. Dear Heavenly Father, we give thanks and praise to you for the lawfulness of your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, his perfect love for you, his perfect love for neighbor, manifested so fully and completely on the cross, where, though you rightly forsook him, for he bears all our sins, he nonetheless cried out, My God, my God, in perfect faith and love. And while our representatives were indeed crucifying him and driving the nails into his hands and feet, And crucifying him that all might see and mock, even still, as we forsook him, he loved us and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so even his cross is mercy, even as it fulfills the law perfectly. We pray that you would conform us into the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, that you would fill us with his words and with his wisdom, that we might grow and live as faithful disciples of him. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so again, just very quickly, Luke 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think it's all about the law. And I think that because we're dealing with a namakos lawyer, that's Luke 10, 25. And the whole question is about the law. Now, I'll just summarize as briefly as I can. I think the lawyer is looking at the law as a way in which he can get into heaven, which is a self-serving use of the law, and ultimately a futile use of the law. I think he's also using the law to distinguish himself as one who who follows the law and is thus fit for heaven. He's distinguishing himself over and against the 'er ne'er-do-wells who don't have the law and don't keep it. Tax collectors, sinners, Samaritans, Gentiles, and the like. So I think what Jesus does is reveals that this is a completely incorrect way of understanding the law and using the law. And he illustrates that chiefly through the parable of the Good Samaritan. The essence of the law is mercy. Not working your way into heaven, not being better than somebody else, but exhibiting mercy. When we see that then Jesus' understanding of the law is that the, at the heart of the law is mercy, we are poised to see him as the Good Samaritan, but in such a way that we don't abandon those last words that he speaks to the Namakos, to the expert in the law, namely, you go and do likewise. So the law from, from Jesus' heart is mercy. He is the Good Samaritan toward us, and he would be, have us be good Samaritans, one unto another. We have no business using the law to make us great and other people not great. We have no business using the law as a way to try to achieve eternal life. Make sense? I think that's what's at root here. All right, good, good. Okay, so then uh, moving right along to chapter 11, this is the next place where the parable arises. And again, where does it begin? Where does it end? kind of hard to figure out either way we'd grab the context so what we'll do is start at 11 uh, one and we see that jesus is praying in a certain place it actually is a it is a good break because what precedes doesn't have any direct influence on what comes next so jesus is praying in a certain place as was his custom he would go off on his own in solitude and pray and when he finishes praying, then one of his disciples comes up to him and says, Lord, teach us to pray as John, John the Baptist, taught his disciples. And it's, it, it's great because Jesus doesn't give them any technique, but just words. <laughs> it's wonderful in and of itself. So he says, when you pray, say, and here we have a different version of the Our Father of the Lord's Prayer. So Matthew 6 is the fuller version that you probably know by heart. Here's a shorter version, probably indicative of the fact that He, I I wouldn't, I, I mean, again, it's kind of a silly thing to argue about, but my best guess would be those aren't the only two times He taught this prayer or taught the disciples how to pray over the course of three years. So, that's where you get the difference, and probably there'd be even more difference. Okay, Jesus isn't interested in a particular formula here, just a way of praying. Um, so I think I think kind of on the low end of the view is that this is just a model prayer, and you should just take this as an example and then go do make your own sort of like riffing off that. That might be kind of a lower view. Um, the highest view of the Lord's prayer is that it's really the fullness of the scriptures; it's all the scriptures all the Psalms, everything wrapped in one. And I, I, really, I really love that. I mean, I think both are true, um, that it is a model prayer and can be used in that way. But I do take that high view of it also, that when you're praying the prayer our Lord has taught us, you're praying the prayer, and it's inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. Okay, so we'll notice, we'll notice some differences, and I, again, I don't want to get too deep here because it isn't a class just on the Bible, but on the parables. So I'll go kind of quickly. Um, Father, again, just to call out to God as Father is a baptismal reality in the New Testament. You cannot call God Father unless you have been born again, born of water and spirit. So right off the bat, it's the baptismal prayer. And in, in the early church, there were significant periods of time in which uh, the Lord's Prayer was, an, was a, a fundamental part of the disciplini arcani, which is um, the, the secret discipline or the deposit that was only given to those who were fully catechized. So, like, let me give you an example, and we can't be too monolithic about this, but let me give you an example of, like, maybe, maybe your average uh, third century or fourth century experience in the church, okay? There's all this buzz going around about who this Jesus is, and you know some Christians, and they start talking to you, and you realize, hey, I want to be a Christian, too. They say, great, come on Sundays and start hearing the word. Okay. So they'd go and they'd hear a service of the word, which wouldn't be terribly different than our service of the word in here during the first half of the divine service. Okay. Then would come a break about the place where we have our offering would be a full break and all would be dismissed except for those who are fully catechized. Okay. Everybody dismissed intermission intermission go out and grab a donut, whatever else. Okay? The service of the sacrament begins, and that's the second part of our divine service. In come only those who are thoroughly catechized, baptized, and of one fellowship there in that place.
1: The church that we went to in uh, Missouri, Concordia, um, small town, St. Paul's state said, some of them remembered back in the day when they would get to that point and somebody would come out, close the doors. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they would, so even. Yeah, yeah, you had some, you had you some, had, some of
0: that going on. Um, in, and you have different manifestations of that uh, in, in Lutheranism, even up until the uh, first part of the 20th century. So Lutheranism just had a different expression. You'd announce for communion ahead of time, they'd literally count the wafers. And if you didn't come announce for communion, and by the way, confession, absolution, All of that. If you didn't do that, you didn't commune. Even if you decided, well, I'm not going to go now. I'm going to go. It's like, hey, there's not enough wafers for you. (laughs) Yeah. So that's that's a way of doing this, right? And probably other ways along the line. All right. Well, that's why now you know the the our father is put into the service of the sacrament. It was not given to those who are not baptized. So again, back to our example. You want to become a Christian, and you think, oh, this is easy. I could be a Christian in a week. No. You're not even going to get baptized for like a year, maybe more, depending on where it falls in the church year. So you've got to wait for Lent. That's this season, although it wasn't always called that. You've got to wait for the pre-Easter season. Okay? And in the meantime, you're going to the service of the word and you're getting vetted. Does this person take this seriously or not? You're going to have a sponsor assigned to you who's going to be in some ways a mentor and in some ways somebody to make sure that you're legit. Okay, And then um, wherever you tie into the period of catechesis, then you start learning the fullness of the Christian faith or as much of it as you can get aside from those secrets, like the, our father, like the words of institution, these things were kept back because on the basis of Jesus statement um, that you should not uh, cast your pearls before swine. Okay. So until you're fully catechized and baptized into the church, respectfully, you're a swine. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that might be overstating it, but it's humorous anyway. So, okay, so you're, you, you finally line up, you go through the catechal catac- period, um, and that's when you're finally at the very end of that, uh, you're taught about the mystery of baptism and what it is, and you receive baptism, and then from baptism... So, this might be a year, might be almost two years of preparation for baptism. Then you're baptized and you're brought into the communion of the church. So, baptism and communion, first communion would often be back to back. And then after that, uh, you get what the church called mystagogy, which is then the unfolding of the mysteries that you just experienced. When you were baptized, this is as God created the new or as God made the creation with his spirit hovering over the face of the deep in Genesis 1, now this has happened to you you were baptized into those waters and the Holy Spirit hovered over them and you are now a new creation. And this kind of thing, tracking through the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, describing what has just happened to you. And the same thing with the Lord's Prayer. Then you'd be taught these secrets like, um, yeah, like, like, sorry, I meant the Lord's Supper, but then you'd be taught the secret of the Lord's Prayer and the secret of the words of institution and these deeper parts of Christianity. So, Uh, Just a very different experience. And, you know, should we, should we uh, continue down our path toward a paganism around us? It may, we may find that again. And I mean, we collectively may find that again, a very helpful catechetical form and process to take. Not everybody gets to just rush into the divine service and sit there while you all participate in the holiest of holies. And they're just wondering like, Hey, why can't I have some crackers and grape juice too?
1: seems you know, I don't know what's happening. <clears throat> this is happening with the LCMS that the church. But I had a conversation with a colleague and she uh, their church just is now joining the LCMS. And she's furious with it because she says, hey, the church needs to stop doing all things. <coughs> <laughs> And start adapting to the culture. Mm. That's why we're losing members when I think it's the opposite. Yeah, we're right. So there's this fuzziness going on out there. I just look at it, and again, I don't know what's happening with the LC, and that's what I would imagine. If they're losing members, it's, it's like what happened to the ELCA, right? Mm-hmm. They just purge, I mean, they just hemorrhage membership because they started going off the rails. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> I, <laughs> Jesus. It was very interesting to hear because she's so upset about this. Yeah. Because she thinks going into divine services is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's not seeker friendly and you know, all. The things we think. Yeah. So yeah. there's this huge debate that I think is more more uh, intense. And uh, I, I just feel like hey, that is the reason why we're losing people. Over difference with the culture, we're just becoming like the culture. Yeah. So, back to the culture and bring it into the church. Yeah, and all you end up
0: doing is converting the church to the world, not the world to the church. I mean, if only somebody had said something definitive about this. Oh, that's right, our Lord did. Uh, (laughs) The salt becoming like the earth, such that it too is only fit to be trampled underfoot by man. But it's
1: so rare. Ron and I have been searching for a long time, and we just love this church, but we've never found anything like it. So it's like this church should be the mega church, <laughs> hmm, yeah. That's what we think. This church should reach thousands of people, but yeah, these rock bands—you know—churches are Historically, the odds are church. against
0: us, huh? you know. <laughs> the, the, the church has always been small, and the 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 closer the church gets to what it should be, typically the smaller it gets. Unfortunately, I and mean, it's not always true. It's not always true.
1: I just recognize and there's depression, the right?
0: Is yeah, that the case? yeah, yeah. There's depression. The yeah, and I, I just look, I mean, I look at it like you guys, like, you know, it, if we're not going to contrast with the world, what do we have to offer?
1: Rhonda went to a website of a Lutheran church in Idaho. Oh, yeah. And they, it's supposed to be LCMS. They have communion as you come in, you know, just, you just come and take it if you want. Just sitting there.
0: Yeah, that's not
1: good. And I'm like, that's... I don't understand that.
0: Yes, yeah, so you can tell that that's not good from the Scripture, but you can also tell that that's not good because it's something Christians haven't done for their 2,000-year history, like anywhere. So that's kind of like a hint.
1: I don't know what's wrong with me.
0: Kind of like a hint that, uh, yeah, maybe you got this thing a little off.
1: Sounds like that was for new believers. For the children of believing... Parents would they be baptized uh, at, at early, shortly after
0: birth in that time? Yes, they would, and uh, much earlier than is generally done today. They would have been brought to communion. In some cases, of course, historically there was the practice of infant communion that doesn't seem to be all that widespread. Uh, it seems, but but probably probably closer to like. I mean, kind of pushing the envelope of like three or four, like, hey, do you know this is the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins? Sure, because you told me, Mom and Dad, I get all my good stuff from you. <laughs> Why are you going to lie to me now? Gonna- yeah, right, right, yeah. And then the catechism will continue. Of course, I mean, the whole thing looks a little different, to tell you the truth, though, because in your, your sermons are, I mean, this is... Uh, your divine service is longer than an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. If you're going to test everyone's patience. I mean, you're really talking about a lengthier service You're talking about the full liturgy that we have, maybe even a bit expanded and a much lengthier, much drier from our vantage point sermon. Uh, And you've got the whole family there. And so in that sense, catechesis is ongoing. It isn't a separate thing from Sunday morning. Yeah. So now it's kind of like to get your kids that equivalent, you'd have to drag them to adult Bible class too, you know, so, which, you know, why not? But, uh, and that's what Sunday school is supposed to be doing. Hopefully it is. I'm pretty confident here. We're doing all right, but maybe not everywhere. It's that way. So, okay. So sorry, uh, tangent, but the, uh, our father or here just uh, Potter, the just father. Hallowed be Your name, your kingdom come. What's missing is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the end of the first three petitions and the end of the last four, we'll see are missing. Give us each day our daily bread, worded slightly differently. Almost certainly having to do with
1: Jesus himself. And second to that, all other things. And then
0: forgive us our sins. Uh, here it is, hamartias, as opposed to trespasses, um, which trespasses isn't exactly accurate either. Uh, ophile is debts. Uh, but again, I mean, they're all the same thing. Debts, trespasses, sins, all the same thing. Slightly, slightly nuanced. Okay, and forgive us our hamartias, our sins, um, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. There's the ophile the indebtedness. And lead us not into temptation. So what's missing is the seventh petition, uh, but deliver us from the evil one. And again, a little idiomatic, because it's not like, now God, stop leading me into temptation here. I'm trying to be a Christian, but more that... Uh, our own flesh is constantly dragging us into temptation. Um, The devil is prowling around to lead us into temptation for the destruction of our faith. So save us from this is obviously the sense. Okay. So he, Jesus, you know, teach us how to pray. They're probably looking for like some sort of, you know, body posture and direction to sit. And he simply takes, his words and puts them in their mouth it's a really beautiful thing okay and he said to them now here we have a little discourse on prayer and it's in this context that we find the parable or parables plural which i kind of lean toward which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight or just in the middle of the night and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves that now that might not mean much to us, but it's, that's a pretty hefty ask anyway, three loaves of bread. Okay. Friend, lend me three loaves for a different friend of mine has arrived on a journey. So he's become my problem. So now I'm making my problem, your problem. (laughs) In the middle of the night, I have nothing to set before him. That is kind of a big deal in a hospitality culture, you know, and so you're kind of, you're making your shame of not being able to provide for him. Somebody else's shame because they won't provide for you. So, I mean, those are just little details, but all right. So what's he going to do verse seven and he will answer him within. Do not bother me. Look how pious people used to be. (laughs) No four letter words. All right. So, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. Uh, they'd all lay on the floor. The whole family would. Have. We didn't. They didn't have a. You know, everybody off to their own bedrooms. <laughs> everybody having their own beds and comforters. Children understand this innately. They always want to crawl into bed, <laughs> like the old ways. All right. So I'm not going to get, or I cannot get up and give you anything. And then verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, his lack of shame, his continuing to bang on the door, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Okay, I mean, this is hilarious. It's so counterintuitive. You would never expect the Lord to teach prayer this way, but here we are. Okay, so not even because he's your friend, not because of the relationship, not because of the quality of man he is, but simply because you keep harassing him. Finally, he will have to answer. Now, persistence. this is persistence.
1: Sort
0: of <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know, maybe the same thing, depending on how you, what your take is. But so, verse nine fleshes out exactly what Jesus' point is with all of this, and I tell you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Look, we can be entirely monergistic, entirely you are saved by grace through faith apart from works. Okay, we we can and we should hold on to those things, but not at the expense of the active language of Scripture. Not in such a way that we're going to pervert or gut Jesus' words. He wants his disciples to ask, to seek, to knock, and repetitively and continuously and until we have what we need or have maybe learned that we don't actually need that thing. <laughs> so great encouragement to, in, in how we should pray with persistence um, with a lack of shame would be a... <laughs> in a way like wrestling oh it's totally that's yeah that's entirely what prayer is yeah great point randy it's it's absolutely so we learned that in the old testament with jacob wrestling with god uh and and saying bless me bless me in this whole exchange and what's your name and you know why do you ask my name seeing that is wonderful which is essentially saying like don't you know I'm God? (laughs) It's just this great exchange. And then Israel, of course, means one who wrestles with God. And so that's what the name that he's given means. And so it's all done in the context of prayer. And then the very name Israel, which continues as a name for the church, is Jew and Gentile, all believers in Christ are true Israel, according to St. Paul. Then we are all ones who wrestle with God through prayer. So thank you so much. Profound point.
1: just sometimes it's hard, right, you know, to mm-hmm. pray because <clears throat> it seems like a wrestling sometimes. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's like being ignored, you know. that's uh, There's a lot of that, like with um, the Syrophoenician woman who's uh, after the Lord for her daughter. She's a Gentile. She's got no standing. And it's like that's a master class in prayer, too, because just flat out ignores her.
1: Send the scraps from
0: the table. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ignores her, rebuffs her, insults her, you know, and she just keeps on, keeping on. Yeah. The disciples are like, get her out of here. It's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> Praying without shame. And then that that's there's some humility involved there too, right? Without shame. Carrying on no matter what. And there's glorious promises here. I mean, I tell you, ask. So Jesus is teaching them how to pray, ask, and continuously so, obnoxiously so, shamelessly so. But then there's this glorious promise, and it will be given to you. Seek falls under the same. Yeah, please. You
1: The humility aspect. This does seem like you know. There, there is no. I mean, there is no arrogance. There is no pride. Yeah, we're beggars. We are in need of everything.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, imagine, imagine how you would feel. I mean, kind of put yourself in these shoes. You get, you know, I know it's you got to like it's a little fictitious, but you got a late night guest and you actually have to go knock knock on your neighbor's door and wake them up. How would you feel? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, so that that is, I mean there's this sense of like, no, God doesn't owe us anything and it's embarrassing for us to even ask shameful sinners though we are. And yet that, that's our Lord's encouragement. I mean, even when he says ask, it's like this kind of beautiful gospel thing of like, no, do it. I know how it feels. <laughs> Just but do it and do it persistently. Yeah, and then this glorious promise, it will be given to you. I mean, now, obviously, in the background is this, how much better than this is God? So even if you had this dear friend who's this dear person, and he's not going to give it to you, but he will because you're annoying, the sense really ultimately is, how much better is God? Okay, so you're probably not even going to have to be that annoying in most cases. Yeah, so there, there's that going on. It, in. it is... Yeah. Where persistence is one thing, mm-hmm. but it reminded me a little bit just because was on my mind is
1: Exodus, where where's our water? Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. and yet God gives them the water. Yeah. You know? just, yeah. They're not doing it in a very nice way, being persistent, but being also rather insulting. Yeah. Uh, but yet God is still gracious, they're giving them the water. They're giving them mm-hmm. the water. <laughs> but, but wasn't that? Wasn't
0: that they were just complaining? And yeah, complaining? that's why the impudence sort of stuck all right mind. right. It's, it's not just persistence. It's, you know, I mean, that's how gracious he is. Yeah, Is that even when you're being, and not to encourage it or not to make it, but just to show his grace, mm-hmm. his, his patience mm-hmm. with us. Uh, we Absolutely.
1: Yeah, that, I mean, their
0: failure there isn't requesting water. Um, yeah. it's blaspheming God and indeed he allows them to thirst to test them. And that's a profound lesson for all of us that he allows us to fall into need to test us. And part of that testing is that we would trust that he has what is best for us in mind, even if that means thirsting for a time and trust him enough to ask that he'll graciously give water and not uh, immediately spin and put him to the test.
1: Yeah.
0: Throwing the, the
1: wood into the water made it sweet. I mean, it's not like we didn't have a precedent. it's just such a wonderful story of this and patience, and situations where the yeah, they are not, are not having
0: Yeah, great point. Yes, yeah, so we've got this. We've got these promises that as we ask, it will be given, and as we seek, we will find, and as we knock, it will be opened, and. Yeah, as, as God's ways are not our ways and we're being conformed in his image, I think that this has everything to do also with learning theology, with learning the ways of God, the word of God, how to pray, etc. I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which this is self-reflective too. Okay, and then 10, he just spells it out. For everyone or all who ask, receive... The one who seeks, finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. So this is the way of discipleship, the way of prayer, the way of asking for God. And I think that, you know, in our mind, it's like, okay, so if I ask long and hard enough for the red Ferrari, will I finally get it? I mean, we're about to kind of have that lid blown off for us. That's his next point. Okay. And I think we can already sense it in the prayer that he gives us. I mean, you'll, you'll note that the Lord's Prayer is completely devoid of the things we usually pray for.
1: How about a four by four with a that turbocharged? I don't think that I
0: categorize that as a want, that's a need.
1: Or Tacoma. Yeah, exactly.
0: Okay, so uh, at 11 then, um, now we shift. And I think that this is actually what the, what the study Bible calls a parable, although I, I don't know how what just preceded isn't a parable then. But what father among you, this is good since we're all males and many of us fathers. Um, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, well, instead of a fish, give him a serpent. Okay, a fish and a serpent kind of look the same in that culture, in that part of the world at that time. So that's kind of the idea. Now, actually, what's profoundly going on here, I think, is this is the way all the Gentiles used to view prayer and the pagans used to view prayer with the fates and the small G gods and all of Be careful what you ask for. And very frequently, even when you are careful what you're asked for, they're going to give it to you in a terrible way.
1: <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: You know, so save me. Okay, great. I'll save you, but you'll be saved in such a way that you'll wish you were dead. Hey, thanks. (laughs) Would have been better for me to not ask. All right, so in many respects, what Jesus is doing is is quite contextual here. um, That you, when you pray to your heavenly father, you don't need to guard yourself or be suspicious of him the way the Greeks do with their gods. Or be too
1: smooth about it either, it sounds like, even if you're just an.
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, a, it's like a kid asking, you know, yeah. I mean, even if the, I mean, just to riff on it, even if the father said no, he's just going to say no, he's not going to give you a snake. You know, you ask for a fish, he's not going to give you a serpent. Okay. Or verse 12, if he ask for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. Again, a scorpion kind of all folded up is about the size and shape of an egg. So parallel statements here. I I mean, I don't know. There's some stuff here that you could preach on that would be fun. The serpents and the scorpions are demonic in nature and um, are to be trampled under feet. So there's a whole riff we could do there. But for the sake of it, we'll keep moving on.
1: If you then who are evil. Now,
0: wait a minute. Yeah, I know.
1: know. He's saying this to his disciples, too.
0: (laughs) Yeah. If you, then, who are evil, and it's the, I mean, the root of it's the Poneirus. It's, you know, as evil as evil can get. It's not just bad. It's evil. Like, when we talk about deliver us from the evil one, and that's Poneiru. So, this is Poneiru's, like the, uh, the, the uh, noun form of it. So yeah, even, even uh, um, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. And that's indicting, isn't it? <laughs> because we do how much more there's the, how much more, how much more will the heavenly father now, here we go. Give the Holy spirit to those who ask him. And I do think that this is a little bit of a rug pull. Cause they're like, they're like, wow. So I can ask whatever I want. I'm going to get it. And he's like, How about the Holy Spirit? And there's law and gospel, isn't it? Because insofar as you're let down by that, you're condemned by that. You want the lesser things. (laughs) (laughs) And insofar as you're amazed by that, that's the gospel. Because if you ask him, we're not just talking about a trout or a hard-boiled egg here, okay? Okay. When you ask the Father, if you ask for the Holy Spirit himself to be given to you, what, what higher gift is there than the Holy Spirit? <laughs> There's none. You mean the third person of the Holy Trinity to come and be poured out upon us and poured into our hearts? There's no greater thing you can possibly ask for. And that's what Jesus punctuates this teaching on prayer with. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And if the Holy Spirit, then what else is he going to withhold? Very similar argumentation made by Paul in Romans. If he's given his own beloved son for you, don't you think he's going to give you all things? <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay, so that really then is the, the, uh, the ending of this section on uh, prayer and you can see, as, by my count, I think I see two parables there. Anything else we want to touch base on? Anything uh, about prayer we want to touch on before we move on? Okay, so, boy, you can see how fuzzy it is in terms of like what's a parable and what's not. In the, if you want to, like, even if you just skim the subheadings of what what comes next. But um, if we go to the next parable proper, or indisputably, it's not till chapter
1: 12, verse 6. Okay. I'm sorry, verse 16. It's not 6, 16. With the parable of the rich fool. All right. Someone
0: in the crowd said to him, now the crowd's already kind of being hostile and unruly. There's a bunch of stuff going on with the crowd, and the Pharisees are hostile, and it's not really a great scene. Verse 13, someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. I mean, I, that's kind of like exercises missing the point. <laughs> and Jesus isn't about to take the demotion. I don't know, maybe best construction, they're, they're looking at him as Moses, and Moses would judge between, you know, before he installed his helpers at Jethro's urging. But probably not. Probably this is just, hey, Jesus, you know, Knock some sense into my stupid brother. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Anthropos man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator? One who divides or partitions out things over you. Which is kind of a stunning statement. I mean, if you think about it, it's like, hey, aren't you God? <laughs> Isn't that kind of your job? Uh, no, that's not, why, that's not why Jesus came. That really is not the role or office of the Messiah. So you kind of got a left-hand, right-hand kingdom thing going on here a little bit, but I wouldn't make too much of that. Jesus just isn't interested in that business. So what's he going to say? Verse 15, he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Because that's what this man is in uh, the crowd in general. He uses the particular to make general. Um, but yeah, here's an instance of covetousness. I don't know. Does the saying note make anything? No, nope, just he doesn't even get into it. I mean, because you don't even know if this is a just case or not. You don't have enough information. But anyway. Regardless, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life, one's zoe, does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And that is one place where I think the English renders it really beautifully, really nicely. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man Produced plentifully. Now, already you can kind of note in this in the subtle details, which our Lord is a master of. Is it the rich man through his hard labors? No, it's the land of the rich man produced plentifully. Who's in charge of the land? God. God saw to it that this man would be wealthy or would have plentiful resources at his disposal the land of the rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, this is a little anemic. He He uh, dialogued within himself, which is a weird thing. And I think it's the entry point to the weirdness of this guy. He dialogues within himself. What should he be doing on the heels of what we just read? Dialoguing with God. Giving thanks to God for the abundance and asking God how he can be a steward of his superabundance. But no, he's not dialoguing with God. He's dialoguing with himself. And you can note this in the English Standard Version. It's kind of fun. It's not, I don't know how, if it's quite this obvious in the Greek, but it is in English. And I, I'll take it. Because he's talking to him, he's thinking to himself, he's dialoguing with himself, and then he's actually like, what shall I do? There's one, for I have nowhere to store my crops. I, I, my, and he said, I will do this. I will, (laughs) and he's seeing the theme, the guy's completely solipsistic. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. So anyway, I'll stop doing that, but you get the point. And if you look for it, it's ridiculous. It's almost every fourth or fifth word is I or my That's, that's what covetousness does to us. That's the nature of covetousness. I, as a quick tangent, that's why the 10 commandments and, you know, depending on how you number and whatever, but they end with coveting. That's not ending with a whimper, which we often think like, oh, and then there's this thing called coveting, uh, but with a bang. In fact, the scriptures say coveting is idolatry. And we go, what? You actually with coveting go all the way back to the first commandment. That's kind of the idolatry sense. But coveting, is, why it's with a bang, is because this is super pernicious. This is what causes St. Paul to go, it's such a thorough part of me that unless the law actually said you shouldn't do this, I wouldn't have even recognized it as unnatural and a sin. So coveting, like that's where the law slams the gavel down, you know, so to speak, um, slams the door shut on any hope we have of justifying ourselves via the law because the heart is constantly and continuously coveting in all manner of forms. I mean, but you can even think of this very crassly, you know. You really want something, the second you get it, you decide, I need to become a collector. (laughs) I mean, no sooner than you whip the knife through the Amazon package, probably that very afternoon, you're back on there looking for something else. So, yeah, that's uh, it's nasty. Okay, well... So this is the nature of coveting as it ties you in on yourself. And it's just kind of this solipsistic existence with your stuff. Now, this guy's got so much, he doesn't even know what to do. And then he says, you know, not like, gosh, I've I've got enough for myself. I, you know, what I should do is give it to other people. No, instead I'm going to, and this is uh, the solution he comes to in verse 18. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. So his biggest problem is, I actually kind of love poking fun at this, um, because it, it's always struck me as such a ridiculous statement, wealth management. Now, I know what it means. And I know that there's like a strategy to using your wealth and tax advantages and handing it down and all that. Okay, so I understand I'm not being a bumpkin about this. But there is something kind of ludicrous about the phrase. Whoa, I got so much wealth, I need someone to manage it. <laughs> and that is actually how we are as Americans. And there's something that kind of echoes to this is like, this guy's like, I got too much stuff. It's spilling out of my barns. What am I going to do? I know I got to manage it. I got to, you know, does manage it mean give it away? So I've got a manageable. amount. Im- no! no, 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 no. I got to tear this down and build bigger barns to store it all. And what am I going to do when I get even more wealth? I'm going to tear those barns down and just keep, you know. Yeah, well, you get the point. It's an absurd, <laughs> it's an absurd thing. It's an absurd parable that Jesus tells. It's wonderful. And it's so indicting. All right, verse 19. And I will say to my soul, who talks to their own soul? I will say to my soul, soul. <laughs> yeah, I will say to my suke, suke. <laughs> You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Which, by the way, here's your first cue, or your first hint, if you haven't got here already, that when Solomon says, there's nothing to do but eat, drink, and be merry, and Christians are like, isn't that lovely? They're utterly missing the point. <coughs> Eating When there's nothing to do but eat, drink, and be merry, you found yourself in hell, not in heaven. <laughs>
1: Yeah, this is the American. <laughs> yeah, American. Yeah, exactly, yeah, no. Careful, Randy, careful. Don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> we
0: can only handle so much truth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The human soul can handle very little truth, very little reality. Yeah, this is, I mean, isn't this the goal? That's why we work so hard to finally get to the state of this guy. Okay. So he says, this is great. You know, says to his soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, so he's busy talking to his soul instead of God. That's the biggest problem. So now God's going to talk to him. and It's not going to be good because he says, Afron, fool. Here's a proof text if you need it, that calling someone a fool, it can't be inherently evil because <laughs> God himself does it. <laughs> Paul, St. Paul goes around calling people morons, so you've got that, too. All right. Fool. Yeah, the religion of niceness does not exist in the Bible. God says, fool, this night your soul is required of you, which is delightfully symmetrical language. He's in this solipsism, soul, soul, you know, and ha, your soul is required of you. I'm going to cut you in half from your soul, you know. So, and there's this beautiful, I mean, there's this really profound thing that even your very soul isn't your own because you're a creature of God. And so you you have an accountability for your very own soul. And this is what all the atheists and all the idiots in our culture don't even understand. It's just this rudimentary thing. I'm my own person. No, you're not. I'm not accountable to anyone. The I that is me is not accountable. No, the I that is you is a creature, absolutely accountable and not your own. Uh, so, kind of a wild point. Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, you know, those big barns, the overflowing, whose will they be? This is just right out of Ecclesiastes. Oh, it's to my kids. So you've just cursed them with the same curse that you've been cursed with? Oh, or they're gonna squander it. And they, I mean. If you want the master class on this, it's Solomon, because he's looking, he's the richest man on the face of the earth. He's writing Ecclesiastes going, it's no good. I'm going to give it to my heirs so that they're going to squander it and blow it, or so it's going to damage and hurt them, or so that, what, their biggest problem in life is that they, too, need to build bigger barns?
1: Well, no, the kids oh, are yeah. Eat, drink, yeah, I know. That's <laughs> what we
0: all want. I want my kids to be rich enough that they don't have to do anything that would actually make them healthy right? Spiritually healthy. I want my kids to be so well set up that they have no time or space for God. Yeah, you got to be careful what what you wish for and what you plan for. So anyway, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's that line. That's that line. So is the one who lays up treasure. Look at Jesus. I mean, here he just spells it out for himself, the laying up of treasure for himself, the continual covetousness that just drives you into this solipsistic madness. And there is no break in it until the Lord says, fool, it's too late. You're done. And everything that you've, your whole religion of self and all the stuff you've accumulated is cannot help you at all because you're not going to take it with you. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And I will—I do have to say, I mean, pastorally, this uh, congregation is filled with people who are rich toward God. That's really an incredible and humbling and amazing thing. So, you know, we can, we can critique right along with the Lord, but we also have to give credit where credit's due. And there is an amazing richness toward God among the saints in this congregation. I will absolutely say that.
1: And that's, that that's sort of the an antidote to the <clears throat> is right? Yeah. And I'm thinking going back to where the parable, do <clears throat> um, you know, not be anxious. The Holy Spirit will teach. What, what was the one we just read? Uh, where you prayed, the, police, the one where uh, Jesus is teaching about you, know, you being evil. Yes. Pray yes. that you have know, no, to do your stuff. And I will not the Lord give you the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Is that the antidote then to covetousness?
0: Is praying yeah. for the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yes,
1: yeah. It absolutely is. I all, I, yeah, it
0: is. Oh, absolutely. Well, and let me tell you what I think. What I really think, and now this isn't right out of the scriptures. This is like a okay, a a pastoral reflection. I actually think that in the Christian life, this tends to cycle. So it tends to go like this. Oh my, my barns are full. What should I do with the excess? And maybe you start to store it up and you start to go, okay, I need to build bigger barns, but you, God willing, come to your senses and go, I got my barns full. That's all I need. It's time to distribute some, right? And so I think, you, I think we as Christians, you, we kind of go through these accumulation phases and these, oh, this is out of hand. Time to distribute or time to sell. Time to have a nice little eBay event and redistribute some of this, right? So I think, that's, I think that that is probably a pretty accurate reflection of how this works in many Christians' lives is you just you kind of wake up one day and you go, how did this happen? Time to redistribute, and time to live a simpler life for a while, and then inevitably it kind of starts to build up again. You know, just cyclical.
1: Extremely so focused on massive, tremendous wealth, and now we have the libraries and all the other things. Yeah, yeah. Done to when they, they they realize it's pretty yeah yeah. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly right. But you have some really wealthy
0: people out there, even pagans who will recognize the futility of like. So, I'm going to give this to my kids, and they're all and they're going to be set up forever. That that's just going to poison them. Yeah. So, there's even. I mean, yeah, I don't think this is some exclusively Christian wisdom here when it comes to this. I think even even pagans who have the law written by God on their hearts uh, gather a lot of these principles. Yeah, and and I do think that as our Lord puts it, I mean, so well, it's it's very often with him, so white and so black. Uh, you either lay up treasure for yourself, or you're
1: rich toward God. Those two are constantly in tension. So,
0: yeah, I think we get we get some more of this later on. Um, that's uh, that's the parable of the. I think it's um, it's the Book of Ecclesiastes in. One parable, as only our Lord could do. Um, let me see. I think that Perfect balance. I was just thinking
1: of David's prayer. Doesn't he pray
0: in Psalm, "Lord, give me your riches nor poverty"? Yeah, I don't know if it's David. I know that quote. Well, I think I know that quote. I mean, there's this great quote, but I think it comes from a church father or some saint oh. somewhere along the line. I don't know if you found it in the scriptures. Let me know. And but I, there is this like um let me not be so rich that i forget you or so so poor that i uh, despise you or something like that it's kind of the christian prayer of <laughs> land me in the middle where I, yeah. it may well be if you find it let me know let me know um okay so maybe what we'll do is we'll just get ourselves set up for next week next week um what you're going to see is that uh, 35, um, verse 35, is the start of the next parable proper. But the, the grammatical cues in 22 show that there should not be any break there whatsoever. Um, it's rather that, like, so, so right where we left off at 21, be rich toward God, 22 is he then said to his disciples, therefore, or on the basis of this. Let's just fly through because this teaching, as you will see, connects immediately with the parable in 35. So we'll go real quick and we'll be set up to start the parable proper next Monday. All right. So at verse 22, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. This is the Marimnata language. So you can think of Mary and Martha. Martha's being rich toward God, sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, Mary is, Martha's off doing her own thing, getting all angry with Jesus Tells her that she's suffering from merimnata. She's concerned or worried about many things, anxious about many things. Okay, so don't be merimnata about your life, your suke here, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. So suke being like inner life, but not in a not in a Christian sense, just like almost you know that which animates your body. And then your body, those are the two full things. So your suke, your soul, and your body. And your soul here, this is where it like crosses our wires because we're thinking in uh, Neoplatonic categories and Jesus isn't. But your soul lives off food and your body needs clothing. That's the point. Okay. So as your soul needs to eat, your body needs to be clothed. And Jesus is saying, don't be anxious about either. 23, for life is more than food. Again, that's the soul is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, okay, and they have neither storehouse nor nor barn. Contrast the wisdom of the birds to the rich fool with all his storehouses and barns. The wisdom of the birds is they just simply rely on the Lord. They neither sow nor reap, they have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Ironically, God was feeding the rich fool too. He just didn't realize it. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, that's merimnon, it's the same word, can add a single hour to his span of life, or a single cubit to his span of life? It doesn't really matter. It's the same idea. So you're not going to, I mean, I think on the superficial level, your worry certainly isn't going to add to your life. I think on the deeper level, um, the days of your life aren't in your hands anyway. You know, the Lord, the Lord has set those dates so you can live as a good steward. You can live and eat healthy and exercise and do all the right stuff, but don't fall into the idolatry of thinking like, Hey, I just, you know, mm, all year on the treadmill, I bet I just earned five more years of life. And it's just, yeah, no, no guarantees there. Okay, so don't be, um, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour or cubit to a span of life? Obviously, the answer is no one. If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, isn't that beautiful? You can't, even add, you can't even add a minute to your life. If you can't even do something that small, then why are you anxious about all the rest? That is a penetrative line. That is a line that you can soak into and marinate in for a long time because there is a lot there. If you can't add a minute to your life, now everybody here thinks they can, but they're fools. If you can't add a minute to your life, then why would you be worried about anything else? In other words, your entire life is being sustained by God. The same God, that. once you recognize that, then you're going to be worried that he's not going to clothe you or feed you. or You're in his hands anyway. <gasps> <Right? laughs> okay, anyway. That invites reflection, but I'm, I'm avoiding it. Consider the lilies, 27. Consider the lilies. So we got the ravens and the lilies. The lilies, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. So they don't work either. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed, arrayed as one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, again much the same way that Ravens are worthless relative to us, but he cares for them. The grass of the field is worthless to us, but he cares for it. So if it's alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith, little faith ones? Okay, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And indeed, when you seek his kingdom, you find that he provides the greatest of all clothing for you, and being clothed in Christ and holy baptism, and the greatest of all foods for you when he gives you the body and blood of his son for the forgiveness of your sins. And from that flow, all these other things. And that, by the way, is how I understand um, that petition, give us this day our daily bread, praying for Christ is the bread of life. Our food is him. Our clothing is him. Every, everything else that we eat, you know, right down to the salami sandwich. and I to
1: ancient church yeah. had in some places, you find that, but
0: it's pretty rare. It's pretty, yeah, it's pretty rare. It's never universal. It's universally wanted, uh, but the logistics are often in the way. Mm-hmm. So, if we, you know, if we all lived within walking distance of the church, we'd have it.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, absolutely. So, okay, um, and just out of necessity, uh, ooh, okay, no, let's, let's just call it there. We'll pick up next week at 32, um, Fear Not, Little Flock, and that'll lead us right into the next parables, which are, um, uh, these are interesting. These are interesting, um, especially because uh, one has a hard time fitting them into the ethos of comfortable contemporary Christianity. Jesus doing more of his Jesus stuff. Okay, let's close uh, with the Lord's prayer then. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.